You're listening to the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, Ben Eagle. To listen to previous episodes, visit thinkingcountry.com or find the podcast on iTunes by searching for Meet the Farmers. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of Meet the Farmers. We're in Cambridgeshire again and I'm visiting Martin Lines on his farm near St Neots. Martin is a third generation arable farmer growing mostly winter cereals on 400 acres here yep. on the family farm. With contracted land added, he's farming around 1400 acres. He's also the chair of the Nature Friendly Farming Network, which is how I got to know him uh, originally a little over a year ago, almost a year to the day, um, when we met at the Oxford Real Farming Conference. Um, the network was still in its infancy then, but it's something that I think we've all seen over the last year, that it has its, its influence has been incredible over such a short period. So we'll be talking about that, we'll be talking about the farm here, and we'll be talking quite a bit about farming and the environment in a general sense, um, and how we can move forward. Martin, thank you for speaking to me. It's really, really good to be here. That's nice to see um, before we talk about the farm, um, we were talking, before we started recording, about Oxford this year, because you, like me, were going up and down the road between the two conferences. What were some of your highlights? Uh, just the people we met, the discussions we had, being challenged in a positive way and having a good conversation, and sometimes very robust. But is that just changing your, changing your thought and being challenged on your mindset um, and it's the I found a really warm lovely atmosphere to sort of have good good conversations with different people and from different backgrounds tell me about the farm here um, what are you growing and what are your soils uh, so we're on heavy uh, clay um, it's mainly combinable crops uh, with a little bit of pasture from when we used to have livestock we do currently winter wheat oilseed uh, rape, winter beans and spring barley. Um, we've changed from all autumn drilling to at least 50% spring cropping now to tap our black grass bombs. And I mean, you, you changed your cultivation practice quite considerably in different areas as well. Tell me about that. Yeah, so probably 10 years ago we were all plough base or and a little bit of mintil. We moved away from the plough because the issues I was having with uh, soil structure, drainage, compaction uh, to a this time cultivator, we, we worked with Kuhn and um, started a program on with the Kuhn Performer, um, which has discs, tines, packers, and a very variable machine so I could target my cultivation to match the soil type and the density and the compaction of the soil. So we could we vary it across the field sometimes because some areas we have more compaction than others. And then we've as the soils we've seen our soil got a lot healthier, our drainage has improved. The workability of the ins- is improved. We moved on to looking for low disturbance drills uh, to more tackle black grass. After we've made our seed bed, we didn't want to move the soil and bring more black grass seed up to come in the crop. We want not to have that. And then we've moved on to a direct drill system and cover crops, and also bringing in organic manure because I've got a neighbour neighbouring farm's got a large free range chicken farm, and I'm bringing in enough muck to do all my PKs and sulphur. Uh, out of that form so I'm really trying to have a more balanced approach and seeing some really positive yield increase uh, and a huge reduction in costs. You were farming until really your father 
passed away relatively recently. You were farming in partnership with him. Yeah. This is a family farm. What was it like growing up here? It's really good. Uh, quite challenging sometimes. Father always had control. Uh, so I always remember grandfather being in this house. Uh, and we used to live at the bottom of the other end of the drive. Okay. And really fun. We used to you know, play on the tractors, you know, small bales. We used to have straw stacks and... It's a lovely place to grow up. Yeah. Slightly isolated, as many farmers are from the village. It's something I find, especially about Cambridgeshire, uh, because I think it's just the way that the way that everywhere is structured around here. How does that affect the community? You've got to make an effort to be in the village and be part of it. Um, you can soon sit here and be isolated, and it's a bit of a nightmare having to get taxis or lifts. <laughs> and if you want to go out for a beer or something, it's that kind of thing. But I wouldn't want to really be anywhere else. I, it's I enjoy my surroundings. I enjoy the history of this place. It goes back to at least the Romans. Uh, we know there's a medieval moated site here, and it's sort of I'm just a small piece of management for a few years while the history goes on. And when was there a, was there a eureka moment when you said, "Yeah, I'm going to be a farmer"? Did you always want to be a farmer, no, or yeah, did I've, you consider other things? No, I've always, I've always, yeah, I've always really wanted to. I really enjoy being outside, seeing the seasons come round, just farming. It's just something I really get a lot of passion from. Clearly you have a, a strong interest in nature and wildlife. Where does that come from? My father used to tell me we used to have a lot of hedgerows here, uh, smaller fields. Uh, they were encouraged to take, take them all out, and my father was taking them all out, making fields bigger. In the 60s? Yeah, 60s, 70s, into the early 80s. I remember as a child seeing sparrows all around the yard. They're all in the, in the sheds eating the grain, and we sealed all the sheds up, food hygiene, and made life hard for wildlife without thinking about it and then he used to tell the English partridge used to be always on there we don't see many of them about and we don't see this about and I suddenly just thought hang on you keep talking about things we're not seeing now something's not quite right so uh, be 17 16 17 years ago I persuaded him to let me go into countryside stewardship. It's the first countryside stewardship. Yeah, so the really old countryside yeah, stewardship. Yeah. And, that, and that started a journey of trying to put features back in. And he used to get, get used to tickling that I was being paid to put hedgerows back in that he got paid to take out not many years before. And it just seemed a daft system. But actually, the more I got involved with it, the more I understand it, the more data I use with the machinery of mapping fields uh, for inputs and outputs the more room we can make for nature because certain bits of my field are unprofitable to grow wheat on. And what else can I do to do with that part of the field? And what other bits of income can I have? We're now in ELS and HLS here in year six, coming to year seven. Uh, and the two bit blocks we rent, we started countryside stewardship, the, the new countryside stewardship uh, last year to take out the awkward corners, square up fields to mine modern machinery and sort of say, how can be most productive in the middle of the field and square things up. But we also do infield stewardship options of skylight pots, lapwing plots. On one of the farms we work on, the contract farms, every fourth tram line we've got uh, six metre flower margins up to see if we can get pollinators to move. And it's about just using our landscape in a productive way for food and for the environment and joining the two together. And the more I joined them, the more I see the benefits to my business by doing so. I'm really, used, I'm really glad that you used that word productivity for both um, because I think that is, I find speaking to, speaking to some farmers, there is, there is more, of a, more of a shift towards that mindset that actually productivity works in all kinds of ways. It isn't just linked to food production. 
As a farmer, we have our asset, which is our landscape. If you're a businessman, you might have a warehouse. How do I get the best return for my landscape? Primarily as a farmer, we produce food from my landscape. And how do I get the best return for that food? So how do we build more transparency, uh, get closer to the marketplace? And the other bits of my landscape, what can I do with it? You know, some people have solar panels, some people have public access and campsites. For me, stewardship really works. And if I can have some, well, what will become probably public money for public goods, that's really good because the bits I can't get a good return from producing wheat or barley, I can offer other things that give my business a benefit, society a benefit, and the environment a benefit. And it's, for me, about fitting that smartly into my business, not making it, as I see some people have done some stewardship, a really pain in the backside to your farming business because they haven't thought about the implications of making it work for the next five to 10 years. Let's take those periods of your agreements in turn um, and sort of look, look, look how, it, how it changed the farm here. So your first countryside stewardship, um, remind, remind what, what, what year you went into that? That was about 17 years ago, so whatever that okay. was. Um, so what did the farm look like before and what were your main achievements uh, uh, from ASCII? Very few hedgerows about, one or two old ones left, uh, but very uh, thin and, and gappy. Uh, we used to crop up to the edge of the ditch and my father used to take pride in going round with the power harrow and trying to get underneath the hedgerow <laughs> and to the very edge of the ditch because there's no cross compliance, there's no yeah. boundary. And if we could fill some more ditches in, great. Um, as long as we kept the drains running. Uh, and I'm like, so we used to have to drill to the edge, then the hedge or the brambles used to come out. So when I go around with the sprayer, I was getting bashed with the sprayer and there's damaging the boom. And I'm like, and the combine used to hit the trees. And the twigs used to land on the exhaust and try and set light to the thing. And I'm like, this really isn't, isn't the way I think we should be. So we've got natural obstacles in the, in the landscape, trees and hedges. Do we chop them all down and take it all away? Or do we say, actually, the spray regulations that came, were coming in with the lee wraps and the certain products weren't allowed to be near watercourses? I said, well, actually, I'll do a six metre margins around all my watercourses, grass margins. We did two metres beside all hedgerows, and then I put a whole load of hedgerows in alongside the roads, because at that time we had an awful lot of problems with hair courses. So instead of them jumping in and out, okay. we, we, I fenced the fields in with hedgerows, uh, and that's how I sold it to my father. It's, it's better security. We put gates and obstacles in the gateways, and we actually stopped a whole load of hassle, stopped fly tipping and everything else. So I used nature to help me do that when we look at it now. So we did all that. We did a few other little options, some bits about the grassland, but it's a pretty basic, just stepping back from the edges kind of scheme. And it gave us a lump of money every year. Uh, and we did that. So that come to the, while I was doing that, it's about year five, year six, I had a bird survey done, a voluntary bird survey on half the farm. So one side of the road, we have some grassland, some medieval woodland, some water. The other side of the road, it's big open fields, and just some grass margins around. The difference in wildlife when they did the bird counts. And I'm like, ooh, so we've got all this over here, and I know I've got all this habitat, and I've got that over there that's really struggling. How do I balance it? And moving on to your entry level and higher level stewardship. Yeah, so we'd had some bird surveys done that identified the differences across the, the farm. And it was like, well, how can I support that and make it viable for my business and delivery more? So we did a tapestry of habitats across the farm from uh, low input called unharvested headlands. So we tried to encourage arable weeds to grow 
and targeted those headlands on my uh, less productive headlands. And that turned into a spring fallow. We did beetle banks, we did uh, flower enhanced grass margins, pollen and nectar margins, wild bird seed mixes, loads of skylark plots, um, and just some other bits, and then some coppicing of the part of the me medieval uh, woodland that we have left. And what we tried to do is fit that into my farming system. So we took out the wavy edges along ditches. So I did quite bold, straight lines from one end to the other and actually delivered, instead of little bits of stewardship that never really delivered because there's no width to them, we did chunks. One, one hectare, 0.8, one hectare, 1.2, 1.5. So you have a big, bold lump. But we fit that to my tram lines. So now my fields are squarer. So we have a, a joined up approach of corridors using my watercourses of flower margins, uh, pollen nectar margins, birdseed mixes, so I can get wildlife to move about. So I've got the different things. But by making the field squarer, so we had a field that, you know, it's 12 and a half hectares, usually drilled about 13, eight. So I'd have to buy some more seed or more products, more fertilizer for the overlaps. Take a bit off, the middle was square. So what we bought and what seed I needed fitted the field. My average yield went up because the outside of the field through our yield mapping, shows that we weren't making a return on there, they're the poorest bits. The bits that are in the corners, and we do lots of turn-ins with machinery, were compacted and weren't great. So we saw the, the bottom line go improve, the yield improve, and we had a package of habitat. Um, and we've just seen a, a, more, a better return. And the more I understand it, the more I understand the different pollinators that have come in and the other aspects that have coming back into the farm, how that's positively benefiting the business as well. I was going to say, in terms of your uh, your business planning and your agronomy as well, are you finding that actually you're you've got a almost like a pollinator mindset yeah. as well? I, so you're actually you're you're planning with that in mind. Yeah, we've I've yeah completely changed my mindset from where we were several years ago about just using the products we needed to use and getting on with it. We now, because I've seen a yield increase where we had a pollen and nectar margins in my beans and in my rape, I'm thinking, well, hang on, there's this beneficials. I've got my own beehive in this two or three hectares of bits. That's improved. But I also noticed the um, aphid eating, the hoverflies and the bits and pieces. So when we had an aphid problem, it was a bit of the first year, I was just late getting the application on. The, the aphids were in the top of the beans and I'm like, oh, this is going to be awful. Um, but all of a sudden, they stopped getting worse, yeah. and the beneficials were there. And actually, then you took the top of the plant out, which never had a pod on anyway. So the next year, I said, right, I'm not going to apply it, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. I still have the product if I need it, and it worked. And it was like, okay, so now I had a mindset, I'm taking all insecticides off the farm. We still we, we were using some insecticide-treated um, wheat seed, and I took all that out and saying, if I need to, it's there, but the more diverse the, the, the i don't know the insects sniffing's got mm. the more I, they've helped me uh run a you know help my business the more i'm thinking now what else can i do so now we're moving into cover crops how we change the soil our drilling times and just trying to work with the environment and nature but it's actually how's that stack up to my business yeah. i just felt for so long we were trying to beat it up and if you really look at the big picture, nature always wins one way or the other. It gets resistant to our products. We had huge challenges with black grass. We had the worst, a couple of years ago, we, we worked really hard to produce lots of wheat, expected yield of probably 10 tonne a hectare if we're doing well, probably a bit more. We ended up with two and a half. 
And I had this huge argument with father saying, we're spending all this money and look what's happened. So I just had, I had a big argument. I drew a line through it. I said, right, we're going to do some spring cropping. We're going to change it. We're going to do late drilling. We're going to do a whole host of different things, bring more beans into the rotations. We have a different mix. And it's made such a positive difference. And actually, I'd like to see more of the industry trying to achieve that. And actually, the products are there, but how do we farm without them first and then use them for that positive yield benefit or you know, disease that may come through? Because what I don't want to see is I grow some wheat and rust comes in and takes the yield completely away. Because what's the point? We've all lost out. Society's lost out because I can't produce food and I've lost out my business. So how do we find the balance? And how do you work with the agronomy side to and challenge? I challenge my uh, agronomist Scott a lot to say, right, we're going to do it out. And he's like, oh, your head be it. Well, okay, right. Maybe I switch a, a boom section off on a sprayer for a year. I forget doing a tram line on purpose. What was the outcome? And let's play. So I quite often switch sections off on my sprayer, not put the fungicide on, not to do a treatment, do something differently. What was the outcome? Now, some, some farmers and certainly agronomists uh, would call that a very risky strategy. What is it that's enabled you to take that? Or do you not even see that as a risk? No, I've got to find some solutions because a lot of these products we're either going to get resistant to or they're not. the investment isn't into the new research for the new products. So how can I reduce my use of that product so when I do need to use it, it still has really good results? And we saw that with the black glass products. We carried on using them and we've built up huge resistance if we'd have been smarter and changed our attitude earlier, and that's where I take my lessons from, if we'd have done spring cropping earlier, I still could have had that chemistry. I've now lost that chemistry. I'm having to purchase very expensive chemistry or doing a lot of other things. So how do we use my mindset on all the other products we use? I'm going to ask a question that I'm sure some listeners are thinking of right now, which is why not go organic? Uh, because I still want, I still have practices, still want a toolbox there of different kits. I see organic, well done to everyone's doing it. It's just a label to say you've met a certificate. And there's many other labels to get a certificate to say you've produced to that level of standard. There's plenty of farmers out there who are trying to integrate and do very much pest integrated policy and very other things. Where's our market? That's how I need to, we need to engage with public and society and politicians to say there's a whole different sort of food at different levels and at different price points and how do we distinguish sometimes between those with everything you're doing in terms of changes of habitat management and soil management perhaps particularly is there anything you've been disappointed with that you'd still like to make some more progress with uh, understanding how we use cover crops the varieties we can only do it once a year so I, I do different splits in different fields to see what works. And next year, it's like this last autumn, horrendously dry. So I had plans to do a whole load of different cover crops. What was the point? It wasn't going to grow. Um, so it's that frustration. We're always up against the element and the environment. But what we have been finding, particularly the last few years, the peaks and troughs are getting bigger. And actually, I need to find a farming system that can ride the, the centre out. And we'll still suffer from each end. But what we found this year, because our soil's got healthier, and I, I haven't got the technical details of it but I know it's better we didn't drought out this year there was still moisture and our crops still grew the fields we haven't dealt with the compaction properly and haven't got the structure quite right so the aggregates in the soil aren't quite set up they're the ones that cracked hugely but in big lumps and droughted out 
The other one's cracked like crazy paving. What's happening, I don't know. And I just spend quite a bit of time reading as many different papers, different people's understanding, quite a lot on YouTube about cover crops and different countries are doing different things. And what can we learn that's their environmental and their climate is very similar to what we're doing and find those and study them and say, hang on, I'll try a bit of that. On a policy level and a research level, what you're doing here is very exciting, but is it supported enough? No, no. The investment needed into it, um, how do we get more of that? And how do we find research? Society, government and, and the industry needs to f- research more into things that probably an individual com- company won't get benefit from, but farming industry will. Agricultural and Horticultural Development Board are doing some different research about cover crops and management, soil management, and we need to do far more of that. As an industry, it helps the industry. What do you hope to achieve in the future in terms of farmland conservation and perhaps increasing that diversity of habitat even further? Well, I'm hopefully any new schemes can be flexible to my farm and be flexible as I develop. Because um, I'd like to do a whole... Good, good luck with that with new countryside stewardship, certainly. <laughs> countryside stewardship are an absolute pain in the backside. <laughs> They, this, I, this doesn't need to. Do you want this on the record? Yeah, yeah. I, I just think the 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 rules around them, the time frames to practically to try and deliver them, just does not work. I hope the new whatever comes later is at flexible and advice and support on to the farm. So whoever I talk to who works with me can say yes. This you know, he did. He failed to deliver that, not through his poor management, but but because outside circumstances and I think that's so important to engage farmers in, into whatever comes and we can deliver a whole load of different things and be flexible as the seasons changes as the climate changes we can deliver different things what are your thoughts with that in mind on a payments by results model uh, I, I think it could work fairly well but you need some up mon- upfront money to deliver if you're doing a pollen and nectar margin there's some large you know you've got to invest at the beginning and a lot of management and then it just needs to top up on the result um, and the result wants to be locally assessed by someone who's worked with you because he knows that you've really tried your best and it wasn't your fault it didn't deliver or you've re- delivered it really well so here's a gold star and what's the incentive to if they want us to deliver really good habitats and a good environment water management holding water back and all the other public goods as they see them how do we get the reward for doing a really good job because farmers are, when they really want to can do a really good uh, producing amazing amounts of food, managing different things. And when the heart's in it and the reward's in it, by heck, they make a good job. Do you think much of the public has any idea at all that any of this goes on? No. I've, we've had a lot of visitors around, uh, well, quite a few before uh, I started getting involved with the network stuff and, and getting more confident in my voice in what, I want, you know, what I'm doing here and what other farmers are really doing. And by bringing like-minded farmers together... We all get more confidence in saying, actually, I'm proud of what we're doing. And we've had a lot of visitors here and I've been starting doing a lot of talks and they're just blown away of how we are, the complications of it all sometimes and the technology we have at our asset to do different things. And how much we do understand, but sometimes the rules, the regulations and the current policy won't allow us to do anything different. Tell me the story of the Nature Friendly Farming Network before its launch oh. in January last year. How did you get to that stage? Uh, and, how, and how did you become the chair? Uh, so I actually end up now, I'm the UK chair. Um, but we'll wind it back quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, so I've always engaged with different organisations, uh, a lot of the ENGOs. Uh, 
and sort of saying, you know, we're trying to farm in a slightly different way and we're trying to join environment and farming together. Just sometimes felt uh, you didn't quite have a joined up voice and they brought different farmers from different places and different parts of the from the whole of the UK. And I kept challenging them saying, you know, where's this role for farmers who across the UK are having a joined up voice and you can support celebrating that. Some independent survey work was done three and a half years ago across the UK with a load of farmers and one of the strong outcomes were they didn't feel they have a voice, they didn't feel they had support by other like-minded farmers across the UK and work with environmental organisations because a lot of us on the ground work with different organisations and actually see the real benefit from it. We may disagree with some of their national headlines and their national policies but on the ground let's crack on and actually the more we work from the more we understand its benefits our business and what we can do. So nearly two years ago, uh, I was asked to see if I can join a, pull a, pull a few people together and see about getting something going. So I started having conversations, uh, found some support and got some support from different organisations, uh, pulled some farmers together a year last November and formed a steering group, which got going really going and the buzz that came out of the room by these different farmers from across the UK saying oh yeah there's others doing this what a great idea by having a, a network of farmers led by farmers run by farmers but also want to work with and have support by a whole range of different organizations and we can lean on them for their science research their best practice but also some of their voice so we have the opportunity to get to their membership to say fuck we're farming in this way we can have good farming in good environment so we got that going, uh, and because of the policy changes and Brexit and everything else, it was all a bit of a rush, because we suddenly realised we've got possibly a new agriculture bill and environmental bills and everything else, and if we want to have an impact with policy side as well as farming and public, we need to get moving. So we launched at the real, I stuck a cane in the sand and said, Oxford Farming Conference, beginning of the year, let's get on with it. And there's one or two uh, people saying, oh, no, You've got to do this and you've got to set all this up. I said, we'll build as we go. We don't know quite what the outcome will be. So we launched last January. All I can say is just skyrocketed yeah. since. The amount of different organisations that want to support, the amount of different individuals, uh, public who have come on board, it's, it just gives me pride and a lot of energy to keep pushing this forward. We want to have a three-way message, really. One to farmers to say there are many farmers farming slightly differently to what you may see, but they're making it work and having a positive effect for the business and for the environment. Here's how it works for them. It's not saying it's right or wrong, but here's a different way and different farmers are trying different things. We want to work with all the different organisations and share that best practice across the UK, not just in England or in Northern Ireland. The different things work wherever you are. You're a farmer. The weather might be slightly different, but it will work. We need to engage with policy uh, decision makers to say actually we are farming in this way and these are the complications in how we're farming these are why stewardships aren't working and here's more what we could do public money for public goods and how we could join it up in our vision of that and also engage with public to say you know this is how your food's produced here's the opportunities of supporting through local markets through labeling through shops but also i think as we go forward Here's the different standard of different products that may be coming into the UK and which ones do you want to buy? And we can have an honest conversation. And the last bit really is, at the moment, we receive £3.2 billion as an industry from the UK or UK via Europe. And actually, we, we want to secure that money, but actually deliver it in a better, better way for farmers. So we have a really joined up approach. And I just feel if we don't 
join with the public and get them to understand how we're farming and why and all the other things we can try and deliver, there's real threat on that finance. And that's actually, there's some farmers that really rely on that, especially uplands and different places. But rather than just pay them because they're a farmer, how do we pay them for the services they're delivering? So they stay as a farmer and they stay producing meat or grains or whatever it will be, but also part of the management from my farm, the core, some of the core costs, is how we manage our hedgerows, our ditches, our infrastructure around us. How do we change so we can get finances for fencing watercourses off, finances for uh, hard roadways? So it's a benefit to my business and it's a benefit to the environment. And we need to explain that to policymakers and public that we're not just asking for money, you're investing in our business or our countryside, which helps our businesses. And it's that balance. So there's lots to go on. And it's been an amazing year so far. I was going to say, I mean, you're clearly an incredibly passionate advocate for what you do. And now you're having yeah, meetings at Smith Square and with, with Michael Gove and the Martin Lines of a few years ago. Have, have, you, have you always been an advocate? Uh, I've, yeah, I've always quietly championed it. But the more I've understood, the more information uh, I read, the more people I talk to, there's such a need for this joined-up approach of environment and food, um, environment and landscapes, public money fin- supporting the farming industry or the landscape and joining the whole lot together. Uh, so, yeah, so I've been very fortunate the last year to have a whole load of people come here and visit, from Chris Packham's to Michael Gove to lead of DEFRA different departments to different organisations and, but it's not just here, it's not just me. It, the, the network's not about me, it's about farmers. So we have a now an England steering group and a chair, John. We have a Welsh, uh, uh, Scottish and Northern Ireland. And it's about having a voice across and finding different farmers that we can say, and, and, and put a bit of a spotlight and celebrate that and say, here's a different way he's farming, or it's slightly different to the norm, or it's, I think it's the norm, and everyone else is slightly different. Uh, and it's that kind of celebrate the best of what we can do but also challenge the poor bit because we can't just celebrate we need to turn the spotlight on those people in our industry who let the side down and how do we support them first help them to change their mindset help them to invest in their businesses uh, find money to come in to you know improve their businesses but there's always got to be a backstop to say actually if you continue letting us all down because that's how i see it you're not just letting yourself down and letting you're letting us all down as an industry because that is the... That's the very nature of the environment. Because, and, and, <laughs> and that's the bit that gets pulled up in the press a bit. Yeah. How do we support them to bring them up? And that's sort yeah, of... Because it's much easier to write a story about something that's gone wrong. Yeah, and, but we hear so little about what goes right mm. because it doesn't sell papers. It doesn't get in the news. Social media is, is brilliant. It's podcasts. Uh, people doing YouTube videos and Twitter accounts and doing videos celebrate and explain to the consumer why you farm in the way you do. Talk about the challenges. Talk about the good and the bad. We can have such an impact. And I think there's lots of challenges going forward. And we recognise those and we're trying to deal with those. But let's look at the positive. Where do we want farming to be in 10 and 20 years' time? And that's my always my vision now. We always used to farm for today and the next rotation. And, and where do we want our businesses, our environment, our food production, our public support and policy support to be? in this 10 and 20 year window and we need to make the foundations now to something to build on you mentioned chris packham you attended uh, the people's walk for wildlife in london last year 
Tell me about some of the conversations you had oh. as, a, as a farmer attending that walk. So what, he came here and did, it, did a buyer blitz with the only farm he visited. And through that, we had a conversation. He said, could I support this walk for wildlife? I thought, sounds OK. I did get to see an early the day before his manifesto. And I'm thinking, oh, that's a little <laughs> challenging. So I, I broke it down. There's a third I could that I thought was quite good. Yep. There's a third that I think with some working could be manageable. And there's a third that was just right over there. Uh, in fact, probably not in this country for me. Uh, and he was like, okay, you really challenged me now. Um, but I thought, you know, I decided to do this. I better go along. Um, and I went along and I, I must admit, I was a bit sheepish and I was thinking, oh heck, what are we doing? As a farmer standing up with this lot. But actually, the people we spoke to, there were some really challenging people there. Um, they're very single uh, issue single mindset but actually by talking to them I found you, you break their hostility down and explain to them so that was a bit pre and then I got asked to go on stage to talk as a farmer and about what we're doing and the warmth of the reception and about talking about balancing it it's not just about the food and the production it's about and the products we use it's about how we try and manage a, a, an even piece and where that middle is or which way we direction we go and actually, the round of applause, and that blew me away. Um, and then we did the walk uh, up to down the street. Some people I walked a bit faster to move away from because <laughs> it just seemed a bit more challenging to my mindset. But majority, if not, I think 95%, they were coming up to talk to you about farming. And, and, just, and I, have, I continue to have comments. And it's that we need to reach out to those people who are challenging our industry, challenging what we're doing. We see social media so polarised we see the industry so polarised about farming and environment and it's it's not it's how would we find some centre ground or something we can talk about park the bits we can't talk about in the baggage and that's for me and certainly what we're trying to do with the network is find those conversations and start to understand where the opposition is and then we can explain where we are and they can say something and we can challenge that but stop this limit arguments because we all got to work together. Mm. We've got huge challenges coming with uh, climate change, with different environmental bills and farming bills and finance. And how do we manage that going forward? And for me, it's about working with a range of people and trying to, one, get support from them, and two, support them, and sort of have a louder joined up voice that stretches across all different parts of society. Because farmers were very much sitting in bubbles sometimes. We go to the same meetings, talking to the same people, shouting the same noise, but we're not reaching other people. Only by headlines in newspapers and bits that aren't always doing us any favours. All I think everyone in the industry has got to do one step. Go do one step first. Join, talk down a pub about what you're doing. Talk to somebody. And then those who have got more confidence, go and talk to your local WIs, your local scouts. Get people on your farm. Brilliant Open Farm Sunday. If you don't want to do a whole big open farm Sunday, do an open Sunday afternoon walk. Yeah. Say, right, two o'clock in my yard, my local village, we'll go for a walk. I'll just talk about my farming practices. That's a really good point, actually, because I think uh, there's there might be this perception. And yeah, open farm Sunday is just it's one of the, the best things, that the, the best ideas for selling what farmers do. Um, in the last few years, but there might be still this perception that actually you have to give a big glitzy fancy event yeah. with tractor rides and all sorts. Actually, yeah, that would work very well mm -hmm. as well. Just an informal walk, 
Whoever turns up, turns up. Yeah. The most important thing is you're speaking to people. Yeah, and, and you, you walk around showing, and you show your pride in what you're delivering. And the great crops of wheat, your livestock, but also talk about the other bits and the challenges of managing the environmental and the hedgerows and why you find... Public hedge- access. Uh, and uh, that's a huge thing we've, we've got to engage with, public access. Get them to understand that dogs on leads are so important at certain times of the year. And the wildlife, you know, if they're running the dog around when it's ground nesting season, you're doing all this great habitat. To run up to someone, have a go at them because the dog's on the lead, you'll get a load of abuse back. Put some polite signage up. Go and say, actually, I'm a bit concerned about your dog because I've got a load of uh, English partridges nesting down here and actually you're disturbing them. So it's going to... And I'm doing all this work to try and improve bird numbers and flower, you know, different flowers and bits and pieces. And I found that positive engagement to public is far better than get off my land, I'm a grumpy farmer. We're recording this in early-ish January. Um, so the agriculture bill still has a <laughs> long way to go. But as it currently stands, do you think it does enough or will do enough to encourage nature-friendly farming? The, bi- the bill is very lacking in detail and certainty. You know, as, as many parts of the industry... We're worried about trade deals and the poor quality being sold out for a trade deal. And how do we stop? If we're not allowed to produce a a food or use a product, it shouldn't be allowed in. And let's have some of that on. Let's have some long-term finance um, and some view of where, how often we should have a review and lock that in. And I think the framework's there. We're all uncertain what the elms will look like. Uh, So we're voting for something blind. But I think... Yeah. The Elm, fra- Elm just listed yeah. just on his, his environmental land management plan scheme. Yeah, so, so it's like a stewardship, but it'd be a whole farm approach of your soils, your environmental your stewardship, probably investment into uh, bits into the farm that delivers productivity. Um, so there's a whole load of stuff we could do, but we don't know what's in it. And it's this, we're voting blind. We see the framework of a bill, but there's little inside it. The frameworks, can I can see... It sets things up in a reasonable way. Um, but we want some certainty, but I need some links between the Environmental Act and the Trade Act and the Clean Air and these other bits. Where's the? I see the bill as a, a tower without the scaffolding joined to the other pieces that are here. And i just trying to get the certainty. And we've had some conversations with uh, policymakers and DEFRA and departments, and you know, there's a lot of assurances. But where is it written on the bill that we can hold them to account for? Um, we heard Michael Gove at the Oxford Farming Conference saying politicians and public can have the decision for a trade vote. So every time they do a, a trade decision, we've got to scrutinise every single thing. If we had something solid on a piece of paper, the politicians know when they go into a room, that's our backstop. We cannot break that. If you need to break that, then go to Parliament. And that's how I see it. We've got to put some solid foundations to it and then build from it. Without those foundations and knowing what they are... It, it's a bit voting something you're not quite sure how it's going to work out but something needs to be in place and where do you start from how much of a threat is a no deal brexit to wildlife <laughs> those are all in the air uh, what we are currently understand that we roll out roll in with eu rules um, and it's just how they're framework. Uh, we're going to have a transition period even if there's no deal there'll be a transition of sorting things out I hope we can match and actually go better than some of the European things, but make it flexible to the areas that are farmed. Uh, so in Cambridgeshire, we may have slightly different rules to Wales because their weather climate is slightly different. Um, and actually, 
make it work for us rather than a 27 country block kind of rule. Um, so I, th I think done right, done well, with farmers' support and engagement, we can actually be a lot better off. You mentioned elms, environmental land management uh, contracts. What are you, I'm, I'm assuming that the Nature Friendly Farming Network has had some influence in shaping these, but I, that's a massive assumption on my part. But what, what, what are your personal thoughts on, on, on that? Uh, so the network have had, we surveyed the membership uh, at the time and got some feedback and we've put a, a document in to say how we see it worked and it was very well received um, and we can see several bits of that coming through. So we're, yeah, we are in for trying to influence that in a positive way. Uh, for my personal view and for this farm, uh, I want to get into it as soon as I can. I would prefer not to be paid per acre of just because I own some land. Uh, I'd rather talk about outcomes. The CAP money, the current money for me on our rented land goes towards my landlord. It doesn't help my business. So it doesn't change how I'm fine. It makes me more intensive or more focused about profit sometimes because I know if I actually, if I don't get a yield at the end of the day on that ground, I've got a quite a large lump of rent to pay yeah. and I need to make that work. And if you took that off and paid me for the things I delivered, and I don't think that gets explained enough to other farmers. It's about, you know, the payment's not stopping dead, it's going to be paid in a different way and you'll be paid for delivering something above the cost of doing it. And that's where the important thing is about, if you want outcomes, give us some targets and let's get on with it. Um, so I want to possibly get into the testing and trials or do the early entry and have a go at seeing how many mistakes we can while it's being trialled and actually have a real joined up a plan of what we do with our soils, our water, our water management as it comes off, whether we can hold some back, our cropping, our rotations, uh, how we manage our sprays, uh, how we manage rainwater and there's a whole load of technology, how much you know, very rate seeding as we're looking at doing and more technology in to capture data to make us more efficient. So I only put products on where they're needed and collect data off to say that's matched. I think there's some really good opportunities and I think there's some really exciting things for the industry to stimulate some investment. And as we saw with the solar panels, blooming expensive when it started, but actually more people got into it, the price point came down to make it really quite affordable. And I see that the early part of the elms need to stimulate investment into science, technology, into productivity in a way, but also in the environmental side. Because if, as a farmer, if you cluster together, and I think that's one of the biggest things about landscape delivery and clustering groups of farmers together, you can share that mower that does your pollen and nectar margins. So a lot of our kit we've got bigger, but I've also gone down, we've got a, a metre drill we use, we've got a four metre drill that I can take down to three metres, to doing all the little bits. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's that balance of approach and what can we share with our neighbours and having help invest in them. Right, it's one minute soapbox time. <laughs> so, this is a relatively new thing on Meet the Farmers, so I'm giving guests one minute um, to talk about a subject of their choice, and this could be anything at all, within reason, uh, farming or non-farming. Martin, do you have a... I'm just getting up a one-minute oh, on the timer. Do you have Actually, a subject in mind? Community engagement. Great. One minute. Go. So community engagement. I think communities need to... You know, we all need to engage with our communities and societies better. Uh, we're getting so disconnected from our other people, our neighbours. Uh, we don't engage we see a lot of fraction in social media that's anti this and anti that. 
we've got to go and talk to people. We need to engage as farmers with our communities and with society and talk about how we farm. Societies need to engage the other way. And we need to uh, sort of have that community spirit back, that, that you know, war spirit of where we all try and do something better together. Um, and that's, if we could do small steps like that, we'd all engage better. We can have proper, honest conversations. We know there's huge challenges and there's many diverse different viewpoints on different dietary needs and different needs. We can't keep having arguments. We need dialogue and strong discussion. Um, we can always not agree, but we need to work, find a way to actually get going. That was pretty good. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. <laughs> That's not bad off the top of my head, I'm thinking. Oh, really? <laughs> Uh, can we go and have a report? Yeah. The, the light is rapidly going, so let's, uh, yeah. let's go and have a look at something outside. Right, so we are, we're not quite standing outside, we're, we're sitting in a nice warm car, but <laughs> in January. Um, Martin, what, what, what are we looking at on now? So this field we've got a cover, we put cover crop in, uh, and this one was mainly based on phacelia. Um, so we should be direct drilling into this. Uh, we, we drill green, we'll go straight in with the drill, and then spray it off, and we need glyphosate to destroy the cover at the moment. But I'm currently trying to work on a drilling system that won't use glyphosate. We'll use a crimp roller and find the right species mixes uh, to squash down and make soil armour and, and suppress. And if a few volunteers come through into my crop, as long as it's not detrimental, does it matter? Yeah, I was going to say, can you explain to listeners about crimping? Because I don't think we've covered it on the podcast yet. So it's, it's like a roller with sets of blades, but it's not there to chop up. It squashes, so the idea is to bruise the stems. So you need a, a, a growing enough plant to be stem out to just bruise it. And those bruises basically kill the plant because it can't transfer the nutrients. And if you do it when there's frosts coming, that's even better. But our problem is at the moment we have a lot of black grass, but the last few years we're really getting on top of that problem and reducing our populations. So if I can lay the cover down and cover the soil and cover the black grass up, it can't come through. When we used to drill, when we drilled with it leaving it standing upright and leave bare soil, one, the ground dried out because the sun got through, and two, the weeds come up. And my view is, and what I've researching is, lay the stuff down as long as the drill can handle it. Yeah, I mean, black grass is, it is the holy grail in many ways, isn't it? Um, obviously, yeah, you're, you're doing as many cultural controls as you can. What's your, what's your recipe of success? Uh, diversity. Uh, change your drilling dates, change your cropping pan, do some spring cropping. Black grass, if you do all of one, black grass evolves around you. If you always drill early, it germinates late. If you just do spring, it drills, drills, it germinates later. Change it. So every couple of seasons, something's different. And the poor old weeds haven't got a clue what's coming out. <laughs> for for non-farming listeners as well, why is why do farmers keep on going on about black grass? Why, why is it such an issue? Uh, so tillers and produces a massive grass plant it robs the yield so if we forecast 10 ton a hectare yield if the black grass is bad and really bad we may get two ton and it's that we've spent all the money and we have no return and so this black grass loves fertilizer it loves fungicides <laughs> and we protect it we grow it we got in a habit of drilling really early because we got more yield and the soil was drier which encouraged it to grow more. I was so, going to say, I mean, I've seen a lot of, lot of farms where they have wonderful crops of black grass. Yeah, I mean, we, we've had horrendous problems with it, and really bad. But the last few years, doing more spring cropping, that really has improved. 
I mean, we're getting to the point we're hardly getting any. We're just doing one pre-emergence spray before the crop comes up, just to spot to suppress that early germination, and don't, don't have any other problems. Um, it's not right in all fields yet, but it's massively improving. And can we get to stop spending money on that grass product, grass weed product, and keep it in my back pocket rather than yeah. the supply chain? And that's how I'm trying to farm to spend to be productive in the best gross margin, not always the best yield, it's the best gross margin, and keep much of the return in my pocket, not in the supply chain, whether that's through machinery, um, chemicals, fertilisers, and that's what we're trying to join up. So where we sit here, we've, you know, we've got beetle banks underneath pylons, we have a hectare of three different turtle dove mixes. We've had turtle doves for many years, yep. last year was the first year we didn't get them here after I planted all these this is voluntary we also do supplementary feeding in the spring for turtle doves we have a hectare of unharvested headland we have a flower enhanced grass margin and it's about having different things and within the field in front of us which is drilled in a second wheat uh, there'd be off memory I think there's 12 or 14 skylark plots out in the middle of the field and it's just doing different things there's a medieval so there's a moat, a moat in an island the house is on there 1100 and some odd okay. um, burnt down in 18 some odd when they built the other house yep. um, there's some nuns in here in 1380 something and there's, there's, we've got the records of who was here for 400 years because one of the colleges owned it um, they went and started Hinchinbrook Monastery which now is Hinchinbrook House and yeah they, the records prove that come from here <laughs> and there's a Scottish princess who was attached to the village church we think we've stayed here um, St. Pandiona, who fled Scotland to be forced married to somebody. <laughs> and it's just yeah, these little bits of history we have in the place. And I stand here, when I work a field, I know the Romans were here. None of these trees, this landscape, was here. What was here? What a, and 100 years ago, or even 60 years ago, you know, these fields were three hedges, these were grass. All the other fields were... Um, uh, a lot smaller. Yeah. We've took them all out. Yeah. Now I've put them back, so we've got photos, aerial photos after the war, and then different every 10, 15 years. Yeah. And it's the difference that we're going through. And yeah. we've put back managed bits around the outside rather than just scruff, as it was seen. Yeah. But after the war, farmers were told, if it's scruffy, you're a bad farmer. Yeah. And the mindset was trim, tidy, and crop to the edge. So where we have uh, a corner, to do something decent with it, we've put a large chunk of birdseed mix that gets split to the tram line. So I have now two tram lines. So I don't faff around with half widths. I do it to tram lines because you waste products on half widths and it gives me a big enough piece to put a decent bit of machinery in there rather than a little tiny margin. Um, so we do seed mix here, one the other side of the wood underneath a pylon. And so where we've got a pylon near a wood, I did a box round. Um, let me down the bottom. Um, so there are bits because we know a lot of the birds were near the woods because from the survey work. So I welcome people here now who want to come and count anything. I don't. Yep. Um, as long as I know where they are, yep. where they're going, what they're doing, um, and that data is mine then to manage. And also, and again here, sorry, without cutting you off, here's a perfect example if you've got that transition habitat. Um, so into your small piece of woodland, you've got your you're mitigating that edge effect yeah. very well. So there's a ditch there, so we didn't want to go near that. You've got an edge effect, so 
as I see my neighbours and many farms around here, they do harvest, they cut their ditch, they cut the hedge. Where's, where's the wildlife? Where all the... And we wonder why this declines. Actually, it doesn't matter about not cutting that, as long as it's within a, in a time frame. Anything that's here can go and sit in there. Yeah. Um, the pollinators can go and move there, and then they can come back as I want them. The beetles, we're now, don't, well, hardly use slug pellets, and we've only used ferric phosphate for a number of years, even though it's possible. But um, I have so many beetles and bits about, they're eating my slugs. I ha yes, I've got slugs in the barley field across there. They're not at threshold. And actually what we've seen is a whole load of crows been in there the last couple of weeks, yeah. eating the bloody things. So we've always panicked and used a product and actually... There's a perfectly good system there called the natural world. Mm. And how do we understand it? And how do we teach ourselves? And what I really want to see is how do we use farmers who are willing to talk about their system to stand up and talk about how it works for them. Because farmer to farmer learning is a lot better than some academic to stand there at the top of a room and uh, tell you how it should be done. So all these new hedgerows, all the grass margins yep. around them. Gosh, it must have been a very different place before you before you started all this. Yeah, and then the same on the other side. And what we've done, we've got a block event the other side. So I work with a number of neighbours now doing stewardship and we're trying to do a landscape delivery, okay. voluntary, connect using the natural corridors, widen them by doing features beside, and then sort of move stuff. So actually what we can do is from here, I've got some very bare area that side of me, and then it goes better. But here, I can get to Huntingdon almost by people doing options, yeah. not all the way. We can get to St Neitz, yeah. uh, round towards Gamblingay, and there's a Bourne Hundred Brook, the Bourne Brook, that goes all the way around to Cambridge. So actually, there's almost corridors. They're not fully all joined up yet, but there's something on most farms. And are you doing that through the formal facilitation some fund, are or are you doing that? Some are formal, informally. some are where it's informal, we're having conversations with people. Which is great. For and me, that's where we should be going. And the what I'm pushing Natural England to do, I want to do a species recovery, landscape delivery, uh, 20,000 hectares. So from Cambridge to Huntingdon to St Neitz round. How do we join all that up? Because that's a lump there. Um, and we've got some great farms really at Islands. Yeah. And there will be clusters in that, because there already are, but we work with them about what they're doing and how do we join the next piece up and the next piece. So they're very keen and interested in whether they become interested in trials. I seriously applaud you, Martin. So, yeah. And what the idea is, every farmer pays a pound a hectare, but you'll get an advisor. So that goes into the advisor pot, and he will come and help, or she will come and help you do your stewardship, yeah. do your cross-compliance, yeah. and join up bids. Yeah bringing like-minded people together and finding some things you've got common ground on. Which species do you want to champion? For me, I did a lot of work with Bion Owls, but some estimates stuff. I got told I'll put two very close to each other. Oh, the waste of time. Both, that following season, both had chicks in. So now I'm doing a ringing license, and I get someone coming. Oh, so we've done 16s on our best year. We do six to eight most years chicks. But I've got people in the village now, um, buying people gifts of Bion Owl boxes. If it's a wedding anniversary or a 50th birthday, they sign it and we put it up somewhere. That's so when I come idea. to get go ringing, I tell them, like, at four o'clock or six o'clock, we're doing your box, be it your box, you can see what's in it. And we're actually engaging different people. I'm trying to do it with the schools now to try and say, build the boxes or you know, PTAs can buy the boxes. Come and see them. That's a really good idea. And it's just finding different things we can engage public with. Yeah. It's not just about 
farming and food. Yeah, and there's certain flagship species on it, like the barn owl, which is an easy way. And you could do stone curlies, you could do that. There's so many species that you could attach an area to and say, right, we're mm. going to champion that. Mm. And you can get a number of farms, and I don't want to keep buying barn owl boxes, so I, you know, I've made quite a few. Yeah, uh, yeah. ply and a day in a workshop. Yeah. But if I can get other people to do it... Yeah, especially kids. It's, it's a great school project. Yeah. It's a so really, we've got really about 60 nest boxes up of sparrows, blue tits, great tits, little owl boxes, kestrel boxes, starling boxes, uh, all sorts of different ones. Um, we've got a whole load of recycled plastic that they make street furniture out of, mm-hmm. all the offcuts, mm-hmm. thinking, you know, recycled plastic, they won't get through that because wooden boxes are squirrels and the woodpeckers go, bloody squirrels, <laughs> inch-thick plastic. Huge thanks to Martin for showing me around his farm and telling me more about the story behind the Nature Friendly Farming Network. To discover more about the network, you can visit their website, which is www.nffn.org.uk. Next time, we're back to livestock and I'll be meeting Johnny Crickmore at Fen Farm Dairy in the Waveney Valley of Suffolk. In the meantime, you can catch all previous episodes of the podcast on thinkingcountry.com. You can also find my contact details on there and please do get in touch. I love to hear feedback from listeners and please also say if you have any questions that you'd like me to put to future guests. I've been your host, Ben Eagle, and this has been Meet the Farmers. I'll look forward to you joining me next time.